holy wow, we're here. We're here. It's been a minute. Um, we got all of our podcast stuff back. We um, did. Well, or or new. We replaced it. Replaced. Um, so we're excited. And um, uh, we're going to have a topic today that, that I think is important and also something that's not really talked about enough. And then, so we're going to talk a little bit about domestic violence and the work going on in this community to serve people who have been abused, hurt, um, wronged. And um, this is an important subject for me um, uh, uh, because I don't know if you know this, but my dad started the first domestic violence center in the state of Hawaii. He built a shelter. I didn't know that. He built a shelter and then um, he had a residential treatment program and it, it ended up just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. But that was one of his, like, if you asked him today, like, what are you most proud of in your career? Starting that shelter and, and getting the treatment center added to it. And, and um, then they ended up getting legal help from the University of Hawaii um, and just sort of expanded out. That start was probably the most important thing that he's ever done. Um, and then when I was in New Orleans, um, maybe because I was trying to be like my dad, I started the first um, shelter in New Orleans for women who had been human trafficked. And so victims of human trafficking and did a two year residential treatment program um, called Eden House. So plug the Eden House um, and, and um, the work that they're doing down there still. But we have two. I was going to say, it's not just the two of us talking about it today. Yeah, we have guests here who are actually experts, particularly experts in the laws um, around domestic violence in South Carolina. And so um, who are you all? I'm Lisa Martin. I teach at the University of South Carolina's law school. And, and is one of our members here. Indeed. And I'm Sarah Compton. I'm a third year law student at the University of South Carolina School of Law. Cool. Sarah, where are you from? I'm from Campobello, so right in between Greenville and Spartanburg in the upstate. Okay. Okay. Well, welcome. 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 We're glad that you all are here. And Lisa, where are you from? Like what? That is a good question. Originally, I'm from St. Louis. Before I moved to Columbia about five and a half years ago, before I came to Columbia, I lived in Washington, D.C. for 17 years. So that's kind of my second home. And then I did a short stint in Florida as well. So I've kind of been everywhere. Yeah, I've been all over the place. And the, the law school brought you to Columbia. Yes, indeed. Tell me about it. What, is, what, is, what does it look like? What do you do? So I teach a, a couple of courses at the law school. The one that I was hired to come and create is called the Domestic Violence Clinic. And um, clinics give students the opportunity to learn how to be lawyers by serving the community and actually stepping into the lawyer role for the first time. So the Supreme Court of South Carolina licensed third-year law students who have taken certain courses and who enroll in clinics under the supervision of faculty members to actually act as lawyers under their supervision. And so Sarah can tell you a little bit more about that was like, but what that means is they actually represent individual clients. So they will have client meetings. When we go to court, they're the ones arguing and questioning witnesses. And so it's an opportunity for them to learn how learn what it's like to be a lawyer and how to provide high quality legal services. And then a second mission of law clinics, including the domestic violence clinic, is to serve the community and help expand the availability of legal services to people who otherwise couldn't afford counsel. 
That's a lot. That is a lot. <laughs> it is That's a lot. That's really cool. What does that feel like as a student, like a, a third year law student? It's such an amazing experience. At first, it's a little bit scary because, of course, this is your first real experience with a client. And especially it's such a an emotional topic that you're dealing with all throughout your representation. So it's a really great experience um, in so many ways because you learn things about yourself as an attorney and working with other people. And at least in our clinic, we work with a partner. So um, we consult with them and also with Professor Martin. So you're not totally alone in your work, but it is very scary being thrown into it for the first time. And like you said, it's an emotional, it's it's an emotionally charged um, topic, part of law. Um, I guess, I don't know. I don't get emotional about contracts. I, there's something, you know, there's, there's, a feeling. I don't know. I've, I've watched this roof project go down. I beg to differ. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I get a little emotional about contracts. Uh, but there's, there's, this is It's different human. when there's a harm behind it. Vulnerability, harm. Yeah. Um, that's a lot. Um, I, I, yeah. I can't imagine doing that in a, a legal setting. And, and I, I don't know. I think my questioning would just go straight to cursing and yelling at somebody. I, I, not a good topic for me. Well, that's why we're priests and not lawyers. <laughs> that's right. So um, uh, 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 tell me about uh, um, what you've learned from like just representing different women. It's something that is a totally different perspective than my own because I have never experienced anything like that. So. When, when I was working with someone who had experienced domestic violence, you have to think about things in a different way. You have to think about things from their perspective. It's not about, you know, what I think I would want in that situation. It's what's best for them. And in the clinic, we learn client-centered lawyering. So what you're trying to do is figure out the best outcome for your client. Um, and that may be different than something that I would want for myself. So what you really have to do when you're working with your client is make sure that you know, you have that communication between yourself and that person, understand what they've experienced and try to do the best thing that you can within the legal system um, that would solve the issues that they have. Hmm. I like client-centered and the idea behind that. Some of the my personal pet peeves in this topic are some of the questions that get asked, like, why doesn't she just leave? Yes, that is the loaded question on this topic. And I understand where that question comes from, because if you haven't experienced this yourself or haven't been close to it, it's easy to think, well, if this happened to me, I would just pick up and go. But it, it's so much more complicated than that. Um, people really care about others that are hurting them. And the pain is just one part of a big, complicated relationship. There's also the matter of go to where, right? We have an affordable housing crisis, you might have heard. <laughs> yeah. Um, there, are, there are not easy options for where someone might go, even if they decide it's time to pick up and leave. If they have children together, it gets more complicated. If they don't have a lot of financial resources, it gets more complicated. If they've been isolated from families and friends, it gets more complicated. Um, and so... As Sarah said, one of the big parts of our mission is to help understand what our clients' goals are and how we can help them achieve those goals and trusting that 
they are in the best position to know what they need. And our job is to provide support along the way to try to help them get what it is that will best meet their needs as they understand them. I think one of the misconceptions with domestic violence, particularly against women, is there's an assumption that it goes from nothing to a violent act. Um, And so that that would make it like if I was walking down the street and somebody shoved me, like, yeah, I would be surprised and would have that reaction of, oh, I'm going to leave or I'm going to. But with domestic violence, it's like tying together a slow knot over time or like the way that like wool will get felted. Um, It's really slow and almost imperceptible until all of a sudden you have a really big knot. And you know that it's a knot, but you don't know where to begin. Um, and I I also really appreciate the, the client-centered way that you guys are approaching this because it gives some of that dignity and empowerment back to somebody who has been disempowered for a great deal of time. That's exactly right. And I like the way you describe that. I mean, in my experience, the... The complexities of abuse are so different in every relationship, and the mechanisms by which one person seeks to control another play out in so many different ways. Um, but often it's it's not something that someone kind of sees coming. It can kind of creep up on you, and then you realize you're stuck, and you would like a different relationship or a different reality of your day-to-day life and it's figuring out how to get there and when you're ready to make that move. And something we haven't talked about yet that I think is really important to understand is that the time of separation when someone finally decides to leave um, or sometimes it's it's a it's an ongoing process, right? You don't leave once, you might try to leave several times, but when you're in that moment of trying to separate from a relationship. That's actually the most dangerous time in the relationship statistically. That's when there's the highest risk of more serious violence, of stalking, and of lethality. And so that is another reason why I think it's really important to just trust the judgment of people who are in those circumstances about when they think the time has come to take the risk that leaving entails. It's not safe right now. That needs to be heard and listened and honored. Um, mm-hmm. Somebody says that. Wow. Um, and then, well, we we touched on it a little bit before. Where do people go? And you, it is a there is a housing crisis in this community. And I was just recently um, in some of the affordable housing, and it's underneath power plant. Uh, Columbia. We have to do better. This is terrible. I mean, it's, it's bad. In a house with roaches and over the top where power lines and power plant and everything else. And people suffer from chronic disease. And it's and the affordable housing list in Columbia is at least three years long. The waiting list. The waiting list. Yes. Um, and it, then once you come up for an available home or unit, you have to take the one that is available to you. And if you don't take it because you walk in and there are roaches or it's obvious it's an unlivable condition you're put back at the end of the list. Um, It's bad. It's really bad. And you all are trying to do something, at least to help this process along. What is that? 
So my partner Kat and I worked alongside the NAACP and the Housing Navigator Project. And basically what we researched were crime-free housing ordinances and nuisance ordinances. And we sort of started just getting a big picture and then pinned down sort of what Columbia does. So there are crime-free housing ordinances in many municipalities, not just Columbia, but specifically in Columbia that are put in place to sort of try to help crime in neighborhoods uh, decrease. But what they really end up doing is displacing people that have experienced domestic violence because they have experienced domestic violence. So how they work in Colombia is the crime-free housing ordinances. uh, Landlords will get, it's sort of like a point system, um, and other municipalities also have this sort of point system that they go by that for the first violation, there's one point assessed against the landlord. For the second, there's two points. For the third, there's five points. And then there can be 10 points for a violation that could result in serious bodily injury or death to occupants as determined by the chief of police. And every point that the landlord receives after the first five points, they're fined $100 per violation. And landlords who are assigned 15 points or more for one rental unit in one permit year have their permit revoked. So landlords don't want to have their permit revoked. They don't want to have nobody occupying their units. So the way that landlords can avoid these points and fines and permit revocation is by getting rid of the tenant that's causing the problem. So they do so by either asking the tenant to vacate the unit or by eviction. And as we've spoken before with the problem in finding housing and um, just the lack of affordable housing in general, most tenants will choose to vacate so they don't have an eviction record. So these crime-free housing ordinances are displacing people who have experienced domestic violence. Forty. But not only that, but they would be less likely to call, too. Because mm-hmm. if, if they report it, then it's a point, and they get, oh. Yes. And, and the landlord just... is then going to make a threat to them that if you keep it up, you're going to be evicted. And It's a... not just the person experiencing violence that their call counts. It's everyone who calls for them. So, for instance, if someone hears yelling or screaming or something that they think is violence happening in another unit, if they call on behalf of that person, that also counts as a violation towards that unit. So it's creating a culture of silence inside inside of these these, these multi-people dwelling. Yeah, multifamily. Oh. Okay. Well, this is a huge problem. So what what are y'all doing and what what can we do? Well, one um, thing that we've done is brought this issue to the attention of the NAACP Housing Navigators Program. So Sarah can tell you a little bit more about the work that they do in South Carolina, but we partnered with them to investigate what is the state of housing ordinances and other housing laws in South Carolina that might encourage evictions because of the experience of domestic violence or sexual assault or stalking for that matter. One component of the municipal ordinance that I just wanted to flag that hasn't come up yet is that actually there's an exception for crimes of domestic violence. Um, To me, that's a good sign that the exception exists because it, it suggests that at some point, 
the Columbia City Council recognized that this could be an issue and wanted to do something about it. What studies have shown us in other jurisdictions is that the exception may not actually have much of an impact because acts that are forms of abuse, as we understand it, might not fit within the de definition of domestic violence under the criminal code. So to count as criminal domestic violence in South Carolina, you have to share certain relationships with the people hurting you. You have to be married, have a child together, or be living together. If you don't live with your partner or never have, that's not domestic violence under our law. It also only includes acts or threats of physical abuse. So stalking would not be covered as well. So there's kind of a whole range of conduct that's not domestic violence and that could result in a, that's not domestic violence under the criminal code, but is domestic violence as we understand the term broadly. Um, and so conduct could be charged as something else, um, not called domestic violence and still result in the threat of eviction. Also, people don't really understand these nuances in practice, right? And so a tenant's not going to think, well, I can call 911 because they'll know this is criminal domestic violence and it won't be a problem. People tend to just kind of understand that police presence can result in eviction and that itself is a deterrent. Well, I'm thinking about, right, so in the last year, there have been a couple of really high-profile celebrity domestic violence cases in the news. Um, and then with the Me Too movement, there was a lot of conversation around, in, in general, violence against women and how difficult it is to prosecute or prove or, and it has created kind of a shroud of silence around all of it. And I'm just thinking of, as you're describing of these situations where maybe a neighbor calls because they hear something and the police come in if i mean i'm thinking back to like stories of my great grandma or something like if she's holding the frying pan then she's going to be accused of being violent as well even though the situation might be more complicated or yeah i can see how this is difficult so Every time I've ever had these sorts of conversations with Lisa, there's always at least one moment where I'm totally speechless. Um, I've had two today so far. And so I wanna dive into those two things. One is um, the laws here, um, like they, if I'm understanding this correctly, they do not cover dating. Correct. There's actually a bill pending before the legislature this year that would change that. So it would expand. There's this definition of what's called a household member that determines for civil orders of protection, which are one of our restraining orders in South Carolina. Um, also, that term under the criminal is used under the criminal code to define domestic violence. And household member, like I said before, now includes current or former spouses, current or former intimate partners who live together, and co-parents. The bill pending before the legislature would expand that term to include dating partners who have never lived together. Okay. All of my St. Martin's lobbyists and everybody who works over in the state house, like, did you all hear that? Let's, let's, do we know the bill? I can find that. Okay, we'll you. find it by the end. But yeah, um, and if this is something that you're you're listening to this podcast and you're interested in, um, shoot me or Mitch a message, and we right. This is something we've done in St. Martin's before. Somebody will write kind of a draft letter, and then 
multiple people can sign their name to it or multiple people can use the same text and send the letter on. Um, so those are the kinds of things that we can do here as a faith community to put our faith into action around these sorts of things. The bill is S-143, and you can learn more about this bill and a lot of other legislative priorities on this issue by going to the State Coalition Against Domestic Violence and Sexual Assaults website. They have the best and longest acronym of any organization I've ever seen. It's SCADVASA. SCADVASA. That's, that's South Carolina Coalition Against Domestic Violence and Sexual Assault. So they have a page that describes all the policy work they're doing. So this bill would expand the definition of household member within that order of protection statute to include dating relationships. So it would be an important step forward. Okay. Yeah, that's one thing. What else can St. Martin's in the Fields do to help? Um, to help women who have been victims, to help the work that the, the legal clinic is doing, to help, well, you just gave us SCADVASA, um, <laughs> to help SCADVASA. Um, what can we do? What can the average person in the pews, um, the average person listening to this podcast, uh, what can we do to help? There are a lot of things that anyone can do to help with this issue. One is to be present for the people in your lives. So this problem is widespread and it crosses kind of all demographic lines. Um, studies show that one in three women and one in seven men in their lifetime will experience some sort of abuse by an intimate partner. One in four women and I think one in nine men will experience a form of severe abuse at the hand of an intimate partner. So this is a, just a really common thing that people experience. But as you said at the beginning, we often don't talk about this. Mm. Um, part of why people don't talk about it is I think they might be embarrassed. Also, they're worried they won't be believed. And often people are not believed. And I think it's the result in part of a natural human reaction that we don't want to believe that people we may know, if we know their partner, um, would have a side to them that's violent or controlling and maybe different than the public persona that we know. And so people often resist information that kind of conflicts with the way they understand the world. And so a common experience of people who are going through abuse in a relationship is to be doubted at every turn, doubted and then judged. Uh, so if they do share information about what they're going through, a um, common reaction is for people to tell them what they should do next. But as you mentioned earlier, Caitlin, that that reaction may cause people to withdraw rather than accept help because they've been experiencing a lot of control and loss of agency, um, or they may experience that um, even if it's a really well-intentioned suggestion as negative judgment and they're getting a lot of that already. And so I think the first thing that people can do is, is be perceptive. If you notice something or if you're approached by someone you care about and they share that they're going through an experience like this, listen, be present, believe them, and be supportive. And I think the way to be supportive is, is again, to listen and then to ask, what can I do? Mm. And be ready to hear what it is you could do um, another thing you can do is be informed about the resources that exist in our community. A great way to do that, I go back to SCADVASA, they have a map on their website that where you can click on each county in the state and a list of the agencies that provide services will come up. 
And so then that's, I think it's a great central resource to understand what help is available for people in each county in the state. You, that all, you can also use that list to get involved with those individual organizations. You can volunteer your time. You can volunteer your money. Each of them have different needs for volunteers and different kinds of expertise that people can contribute. And then if you're interested on more of kind of the systemic policy level, uh, SCADVASA's webpage offers an opportunity for people to sign up to get policy alerts. And there are other big statewide organizations that do this work throughout the state. SC Van, which is the South Carolina Victim Assistance Network, does a lot of work with victims of domestic violence, sexual assault, and other crimes. And they're a great resource and accept volunteers. South Carolina Legal Services accept volunteers. If you're a lawyer and want to get involved, they offer pro bono opportunities. I believe SC Van does as well. SCADVASA has a contract attorney program. People have all sorts of needs when they're experiencing abuse. And so many of these organizations can match attorney expertise with the needs of clients. So you could reach out to them to see how you could put your expertise at work. But you don't have to be a lawyer to help. Everybody can help. Right. You don't need to be a lawyer to help. I want to make sure that we mention to um, the work of sister care in our community. Sister care is uh, more of that like immediate need type organization for people experiencing domestic violence. So they have a hotline that people can call. Um, they have, you know, a website that has that like button at the top where um, a lot of domestic violence websites have this where if, you know, you're abuser kind of sneaks up behind you, you can click the escape button and it takes you to weather.com. Um, but sister care is like a, a wraparound service. So they provide for immediate needs. They provide for, you know, that moment that a woman decides it's time to leave. They can help make sure that for the next several days, for the next weeks, whatever it is that she has what she needs in order to do so safely. So they have, you know, that temporary housing, they have a stock of clothes, they have a stock of food and menstruation supplies and whatever somebody might need in those immediate hours and days after leaving. Um, and then they have lots of counseling services and the ability to connect people with some of these different kinds of lawyers um, in, in those days. And if this is something that you're passionate about and care about, definitely check into Sister Care. I know they look for volunteers. They look for financial donations. They look for donations in kind. Um, there's a variety of ways that you can be involved with that kind of immediate mercy care um, for folks who've been experiencing violence. That's awesome. Okay. Awesome. We have something to do. We have something to do. We have some work to do. Um, uh, Sarah, I want to circle back a little bit because that so you and your your clinic partner cat figured this problem out with the uh, the housing initiative like you guys researched and figured this out just on a, what was what, what made you do that so at the beginning of the semester and it's really funny that cat and i both did this professor martin mentioned this problem and mentioned this community project and the opportunity to work alongside the NAACP and the Housing Navigators Program. And Kat and I both were just astounded that this problem existed. And we were just very excited and ready to learn everything that there was about it and try to help because 
the worst thing you can do is know that there's a problem, have it bother you, and then do nothing about it. I love that. In the church, um, I define mission as mission is when passion meets the service of God and neighbor. And so I, you've done that. You, you have a mission. I, it, that's pretty, it's almost Blues Brothers. You have a mission from God. Um, that's amazing that you, that you all have done that. Now you and I just need to get the band together or something. Right? Yeah. yeah, we can add a sound bit to this. <laughs> Is it okay if Sarah tells us a little bit more about yeah, the NAACP about it. Yeah, Housing Navigators Project? Yeah, everything. Okay, so the Housing Navigators Project was founded in response to the South Carolina housing crisis. Um, and the housing navigators assist Richland residents when they are behind on rent, facing eviction, having problems with landlords, and even having problems paying for rent, or they feel like they may have a problem in the future paying for rent. Um, they are themselves community volunteers uh, that wanted to help people who are facing a housing crisis. Um, so basically their role is um, in taking information um, in taking these people's stories and connecting them with attorneys that can help them. Um, so on their website, they do recommend that if someone has already been served eviction papers to contact someone like South Carolina Legal Services that may be able to help them since that's a more urgent thing. Um, but otherwise, they're sort of a, a hub of connections. So they'll connect you with an attorney or someone else who may be able to help. So I, as I'm sitting here thinking about the housing side of this and the possibility for eviction or, you know, the stories of somebody escaping a situation and then figuring out what to do with that next step. Um, so I, I used to help with an emergency overflow homeless shelter when I was in Winston-Salem that we ran out of our church basement and ours was the women's shelter. And so we had on a non-infrequent basis, a woman show up who had escaped something and didn't know where else to go and needed someplace warm to sleep. So where does kind of homelessness fit into some of this picture? And um, what are ordinances and cities and municipalities kind of doing about that piece of it? I don't know if I can give you precise statistics on the issue, but I can tell you just from my practice experience over the years um, and the bulletins that are regularly put out by kind of national level advocacy organizations that housing is a critical issue for people who are experiencing abuse. The lack of affordable housing alternatives keep people in abusive relationships so that they can keep their housing. Housing is routinely put at risk because of abuse, because of these kind of ordinances that Sarah and Kat researched, um, but also because of terms and leases that prohibit crimes from occurring in housing units. And the value of having an affordable housing unit is such that people Often I've seen in abusive relationships, the struggle is really over maintaining the household, right? So um, I've represented people over the years who have an affordable housing unit, enter a relationship with someone, that relationship becomes abusive, and then 
Um, the real struggle is who's going to have to leave. Housing is the key resource um, for both parties. And people kind of get used because of their status of having an affordable housing unit in their name. So one of the things we need to do as a community is invest in housing. Uh, if we had more affordable housing, if we had more resources that allowed people to live in clean, healthy, safe housing and move between housing units, we would give people a lot more agency over their lives and a lot more opportunity to make different choices than the ones that confront them every day. And this is a perfect plug for the work that More Justice is doing right now. Yeah, um, so if if you've missed the announcements at church or are one of our listeners from far away, we're involved with an interfaith advocacy group called More Justice, which is lots of different churches and synagogues and even a mosque in town that are um, working on grassroots issues. And one of the issues that we've cut is affordable housing, and we've been advocating for um, the for Richland County to implement an affordable housing trust fund so that developers can come to the county and receive funds for building affordable housing. Um, we've gotten the city to agree to put $4 million worth of ARPA funding, which was that COVID relief funding from the federal government, toward affordable housing, but they haven't said exactly how they're going to do it yet. And $4 million can disappear pretty quickly if it's not sort of safeguarded or or if something is um, if more funding is put alongside it. Places like Greenville did, I want to say like $10 million when they established their affordable housing trust fund. So we've got a ways to go, but it's something that folks in our church have been working on um, locally to make more affordable housing in our area. Um, and one of the things with it is that Columbia is a growing city. The downtown is developing. There's new industry industry coming in. And our need for housing is only going to get worse if we don't start now. And then you add alongside it the issues that we're already having. Um, so that, that's just a, a nice little intersection there that, you know, when we talk about some of the stories around the affordable housing work that we've already done with the congregation and with other congregations, there's this other side to it that like, these are the real stories and the real people that rely on this. That's right. I, I hear affordable housing as a concept and a line item on a, you know, on the city budget. Um, these are the people and the faces who need it for their survival. Mm -hmm. um, and, and need it at particularly the most dangerous times of their lives. I want to leave. And I have nowhere to go. And I have nowhere to go. Um, and and so, I can't afford to go anywhere. Absolutely. So because the only thing that's been built is luxury apartments on whatever street. And there's the edge. Yeah. Thank you, Caitlin. You're welcome. You can say I've, things that some of... <laughs> I've had a cup of coffee this morning, so I'm doing great so far. <laughs> um, one thing that... that this is a... I think this has been very informative. Um... I asked this when Aaron Jean Ward was on, um, because this is a very hard topic. And we were talking with Aaron Jean about uh, addiction, which is also a hard topic. Um, in the midst of hard topics, um, the question that I always ask is, where do you find hope? 
And um, I, I'll start. I find hope with the work that you all are doing. I find hope with um, third-year law students who have a passion for this and a passion for advocacy and a passion for protecting others and a passion for uh, supporting um, victims. I find hope in that there are students who are like, I want to engage in this. And so thank you um, uh, for being here. Where do you find hope? I find a lot of hope from my clients. They are so resilient and strong and inspiring and often find joy in the small moments, but find a lot of peace and are able to reach their goals and stand up for what they think is right despite really difficult circumstances. So I find a lot of hope in them and also in the students that I work with. Every fall when the clinic is getting started, I get super excited because I start with law students and at the end of the semester, I have these amazing lawyers working with me who are ready to take on the world and trained to do domestic violence work out in practice if they want to. But otherwise, I know that they do excellent work and will serve the community so well. And so I find a lot of hope in them too. I find a lot of hope in all of the stories that I hear that, you know, people have successfully, you know, gotten away from their abusers and people that are doing the best from the, for themselves and the best that they can do. Um, I find a lot of hope, even in the things that we mentioned, like the exception to the crime-free housing for domestic violence victims, just a small thing like that can give me so much hope. While that I don't think is enough to solve the issue, something is happening. Somebody's hearing something and doing something about it. And that gives me a lot of hope. Somebody is seeing a problem and wanting to help and seeing that there is something that they can do about it, even if they can't solve the entire issue itself, just breaking off a small bit of the bad and turning it into something that could help someone. Well said. Yeah, you chip away at it. Yeah, thank you. How about you, Caitlin? Where do you find hope in all of this? I find hope in the smart people that are paying attention to the little details. Right. The the research you guys did to say, hang on a second, I think this ordinance might be a problem. Let me go get dig deeper. Um, that's just two of you going and finding that and then creating a ripple in the system. And there is so much hope in the people in that position who pay attention and listen and find the little thing that becomes a big ripple. Right. There's lots of people that work with sister care. There's lots of people that you know, we'll gather up period products or clothing or whatever else and go donate it. And that's all wonderful and so good. And there is something to be said for that little thing that creates a big change in a system. And I, I'm just so hopeful that there are smart people engaged in that. There's hope. Well, before we close out, shout out to, um, uh, at the legal clinic and to everything that's happening there. Um, remember everybody, uh, the SCADVASA um, acronym and get plugged into that. It's so long that I, how, how can I possibly forget it at this point? Um, so uh, take a look at the webpage on how you can help. Um, if this is a topic that interests you and you want to learn more, um, we can connect you to resources through the church office. Just email Caitlin or I. 
And um, thank you both for being with us and, and helping to shine light on um, some of the issues around domestic violence, but also some of the issues around affordable housing um, and the work that needs to be done here in Columbia to keep people safe. So thank you for being with us. Thank you for having us. Yes, thank you so much. It's been a great time. Shall we close in a prayer? Yes. The Lord be with you. Also with you. Let us pray. Oh, blessed Lord, you ministered to absolutely everyone who came to you. Look with compassion upon all those who've experienced violence at the hands of another whom they loved and trusted and who lost their health and freedom. Restore to them the assurance of your unfailing mercy. Remove from them the fears that beset them. Strengthen them in the work of their recovery. And bless all those along the way whose many hands lift them up to that wholeness and who care for them. Give patient understanding and above all, persevering love in your holy name. Amen. This is a podcast of St. Martin's in the Fields in Columbia, South Carolina. Pay us a visit here on campus, come worship with us on Sundays, or visit us online at smifsc.com. Be sure to like, review, and subscribe to this podcast on your podcast channels, and leave a comment. Let us know if you like this episode, if you like this format. We want to hear from you. Let us go in peace to love and serve the Lord. Thanks be to God.